0: Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, it's been about 3 weeks since I've been on. I'm glad to be back home, glad to be back, be back in the studio. And guys, it's going to be an amazing episode with my friend Jonathan. We're going to be talking about how to become a resilient man or woman, but mostly we're talking to men. And he has he's an amazing podcast host. He's, he's a speaker. He does it all. He's been through hell and back, including prison, drug addiction, having to deal with suicides. So this is going to be a really deep conversation and you're going to learn a lot from this. So make sure you subscribe, click that notification bell because you're going to want to save this and share it out to somebody because somebody might need to hear this today. Jonathan, my brother, welcome to the show. What's up, man?
1: Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm like pumped after that intro. That that was badass, dude.
0: Yeah, I got some great people that do our graphics, so I'm very grateful. So, So before I even forget, the first question I ask is, what is your definition of resiliency?
1: You know, the further I've gone in my journey in life, I've come to the conclusion that I think resiliency is a skill. I mean, I think I think that, you know, you're born with a certain amount of it, but I think it's something you can absolutely build. So um, I like to say it's the reservoir of strength that you pull from
0: in times of adversity. I love it. I love it. So now we're going to hop back in the way back machine. So tell us a little bit about where you come from, where you grew up and what kind of little kid was Jonathan?
1: Yeah, man. So my parents had me really young. Mom was 16, dad 17, uh, born in South Atlanta. So that was back in 1980. So you can imagine, you know, not not really much support um, from anyone from their end. And they divorced by the time I was two, I'm pretty sure. So I never really got to experience my mom and dad being together. Um, You know, my earliest memories are, are memories of me as a kid, you know, really kind of trying to figure things out, um, on my own because either, uh, you know, my mom had was laying on like the, the bed, the mattress or whatever all day. Um, and I was trying to, you know, make, make me some soup or something or, or even a memory of, of my mom leaving me overnight at, at around seven or eight years old, um, to watch my toddler sister and another kid. And this is before cell phones. So like, and this kid happened to spray my sister with pepper spray, and, I, and my memory goes to to her in the tub, uh, me and, and me panicking, trying to figure things out. So, you know, kind of forced into life pretty early on. Um, never got to really experience much of a childhood, I don't think. Ended up uh, ended up in, ended up with dad, and when, once I got to Dad's, things kind of settled in. Uh, they, you know, they worked, and, and they every day we ate. Everything was, you know, fairly fairly normal. Um, the streets of South Atlanta were, were kind of rough. You know, the area we grew up in was pretty rough. You know, gangsters were idolized, drug dealers were idolized. That's who we wanted to be, you know. Uh, started drinking it. I think I drank my first 40 before I was 10 and I smoked weed for the first time right around 12. So I was just kind of normal though, honestly. It wasn't even that big of a deal. Um, kind of fast forward through, through high school, which was fairly normal. A lot of partying and a lot of drugs and stuff, but just normal high school stuff. Managed to graduate, and uh, and when I graduated and moved out, got married or had my first daughter, had my son, got married, and then, and then right in that time is, is when my life kind of got flipped upside down, um, and the addiction really just basically took over my life. Spent those you know those years as just pathological liar running the streets. So
0: no. no. Now let's hop in. You know, to get a little bit deeper because, you know, I grew up. Parents of an, uh, my parents, my mother was an addict, uh, but for me, books became my my way of dealing with issues when I was a kid. Um, so I loved to read. I because it took me somewhere else. So what were some of the things that? What was some of your coping mechanisms as a young child? Well, that's a really good question. Um... You know,
1: I haven't really never, ever, ever thought about it and, and put myself back in that place. Um, you know, as we, as I got a little older and, and, you know, when I say older, like seven, eight, nine, you know, once I, once I was with dad, um, you know, we, we, we definitely, me and my, my best friend, we definitely had the imagination and we ran around and, and we would pack our little lunch and, and play like war all day and like not come home and, you know, eat a, bologna sandwich and, and run around in camouflage. I mean, we definitely had an active imagination. Um, you know, so maybe that, that was part of it, trying to kind of escape, escape reality. But, um, back on those early years, man, I really, I really haven't thought about it. Um,
0: All right. So like, we, like, I, I didn't think I was ever going to live past the age of 25. I, you know, I never pictured I would even be alive at this point. I, would just, I was just an addict running the streets, trying to get high or get drunk whenever I can. So were you, is that the same way you were experiencing, you know, yeah. teenagehood and going through high school? I mean, through high school was probably the, the only time in my life that I, I, I would say I was pretty like
1: socially normal, you know, kind of running around with the cool kids in the middle of everything. Um, it was just one big party, one big blur. Got into like some hallucinogens and those things got really popular um i i would say that that i when i really started like numbing and like running from from reality was was right after i had my my first daughter and and got married and had my son all that happened like in a two-year span and i absolutely did not know um how to be a man or how to be a parent or how to be an adult at all uh so i think that that, that was part of the reason that that I turned to drugs so heavily. Um, it's it just, you know, didn't know how to be one. Didn't want to figure it out at that point. So instead, I just, you know, ran around kind of numb
0: and withdrawn. All right. So I, for me, I knew that my come to Jesus moment was when I was looking at five years for grand larceny. Um, but got, by the grace of God, I didn't go to jail. Uh, but you actually did go to jail. You actually did go do some time. So talk to us about that. You know, now you're a father, you got, you got a kid, you got a wife, but you're hitting the streets even harder than when you were single. So tell us about that lifestyle.
1: Yeah. So through my twenties, you know, as, as a, a, a new father and a, and a new husband, I absolutely would go to work um and then get off and not really say where i was or what time i was getting off and i would go back and run the streets that i grew up on or or sometimes i wouldn't even work and i would say i was at work um doing the same thing running those streets that, that i grew up on um, those 10 years were i mean i was not a good person at all um, had foreclosure repossession um, you know, taking money that was supposed to be used on bills and using it for my addiction. Um, I got introduced to meth, uh, right around 21, 22, kind of in that same little time period. Um, and when that happened, things really kind of turned sideways pretty quick. And, uh, like I said, and then pain pills on top of that, it was really just a smorgasbord of, of whatever, never really that much of a drinker. Um, but But meth and pain pills were were the two biggest things. And once I kind of got introduced to those, um, I had no self-control. And and like I said, I was just not a very good person at all. And, you know, you never got a straight answer from me. Um, And and then as I've gotten older and kind of gotten out of that and and reflect on it, it was honestly a lot of the things that I learned from my mom. She was very deceitful as well. Uh, you never got a straight answer from her, and there was always an ulterior motive pretty much to, like, everything she did, and that's the same person that I, that I kind of turned into in my 20s. Um, so, like, fast forward to the, about 10 solid years of this with, with my first wife, and she finally, you know, had enough, and, and right around 30, uh, she divorced me. And, you know, I was I would say, like, with my kids and, like, stuff, I was a good... Like day to day like from the outside looking in a good dad coached my son's baseball team like I definitely like taught him right from wrong like a lot of things that I wasn't doing or whatever but but I still kind of like taught on that so in my mind when she divorced me I was like I- I'm the good dad and and she wouldn't let me see my kids you know in hindsight is absolutely the right thing to do but in the moment it was like a pity party and I was like you know, I may have screwed up in every other area, but but I'm a good dad, and and that that piece like propelled me harder to to, to get to the point where I honestly didn't care if I lived or died. I mean, I really didn't didn't care what happened to me. Um, running around, living in hotels, um, not really not have anywhere to live, just living wherever I could crash. Basically homeless. Kind of became the right hand man of a local drug dealer. Um, even got introduced to to needles with meth in this time. And when that, that happened, it, it spiraled and within just a few months. Uh, yeah, I was
0: sitting in a jail cell staring at a 15 to five. So what was your relationship with your mother and father at this point? So with my mom, um, just kind of in
1: and out of my life, you know, just uh, see her on some weekends and she got she kind of got straightened out for for I don't know eight or nine maybe even ten year stretch um, when she was married to, to a certain God you know in her life so like I developed kind of a relationship and honestly my mom as screwed up as she was she kind of understood me a little bit you know she understood that addiction and that monster that you that you have inside of you so I could kind of relate to her so as screwed up as she was and, and stuff it was. um you know, she, she was one of the people that actually I felt like kind of understood who I was. Um and, and my dad at that point, up until just a few months before when I really hit the streets hard, it was a fairly normal uh relationship with them, with my dad and stepmom and my brothers and all that. Um then I just kind of disappeared once the, the divorce happened and I hit the streets, I literally like nobody knew where I was or anything. So I just kind of disappeared for a couple of years before before I ended up in prison. But you know, pretty pretty normal-ish uh, relationship, you know, they were, they were tired of being lied to and tired of all, you know, all the the crap, just like my wife was at the time was. So,
0: All right. So, you know, tell us, cause you know, a lot of people will see, you know, you have a, you're, you're a great father, you know, you're a great family man. You have a great business going now. You got an amazing podcast. Guys, if you get a chance, check out the Resilient Man podcast, amazing podcast but they don't they don't see the shit that you went through you know everybody they don't see they think that everything is unicorns and rainbows so yeah. tell me about how you got locked up and what it was like getting locked up so yeah i
1: um it was a reality check it was a dose of reality it was um it it was a dose of reality. It it was maybe for the first time in like 15 years that I was completely sober for the, you know, and, and, and still, and, you know, with my own thoughts and um, forced really to, to reflect on the person that I had become. Um, You know, you hear those prison doors, clink, clink, slam, and and it's, it's a dose of reality. And then the judge hits you with something like a 15 to five, You know. um, Now, what did you
0: get locked up for?
1: It it was just all drug-related stuff. Just it was. um, I I met this like I was. She was ten years younger than me, um, dancer or whatever, and was running the streets. And she had a brilliant plan. And it was. It's a whole story. But the the charge the charge ended up was burglary. Um, It was for going in and taking a ring that this guy had proposed to her to propose to her with, um, like I said, I'd probably been up for two weeks at that point or something like that, you know, with maybe no sleep. Um, so yeah, that's that's
0: like, you know, sitting in jail. Like I know, like when I, when I got clean, I just hit 34 years. Um, my body just went haywire once I couldn't have any, drugs or alcohol in me. So what was it like going cold turkey in prison off of everything you've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years? It was
1: hell on earth.
0: It was um
1: it was just um the most you know excruciating thing that I've ever experienced. And I think you multiply that by like being in a little bitty box, you know, not being able to really do anything. Um and I just, I probably slept for like a good solid week. Um, you know, it was just, uh, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. I mean, they gave they give you a little bit of of something or whatever one way to help you sleep. Um, and I, I never forget, like, kind of coming out of it, even even the little meal you know, that they prepare there for you um, like taking a bite of like cabbage. And you know, I could almost like feel the nutrients, you know, running through my body because it had been so long since I had anything like that.
0: All right. So now like, I was a corrections officer for a while. And I realized at that time that people go two ways when they go to jail, either they learn to be a better criminal or they decided, you know what? I'm done. I'm not coming back. I've had it. My life is at the pits and um, I don't want to become, you know, somebody that just have keeps coming back to jail at time after time. So which way did you go? Did you become a better criminal or you said I've had it? I'm done.
1: Uh, I'll tell you a story. I was I was at diagnostics, um, which is where you go before you go to your long term facility. Kind of go and get your you do your IQ test and you do your height and weight and, and go dental, you know, you just kind of like almost like an intake. And I was there for about a month and that was honestly the worst place that I was. It, it was, it was really, really bad. And they kind of lump everybody with everybody. So I'm just hanging out playing cards with these guys that I've met, you know, cause just kind of hang hang out with whoever. Um, I'm sorry, man. Ashton, please go upstairs go. I wasn't expecting him to be home. Jeez, man. Uh,
0: My daughter does it all the time.
1: Yeah. He wasn't supposed to be home this early. Really. You know, some of this stuff doesn't know. So, um, anyway, um, I was playing cards with these guys. Like I said, just kind of take to whoever, you know, will hang out with you when, when you're in that situation. And, and, uh, Throughout the game of spades, you know, I learned that the guy to my right was in for murder and the guy to my left was in for rape. And uh, I'll never forget that night um, just sitting on my bunk looking around and, and saying like, you know, I don't know much, but like I know that this is not a place for me. You know, this is not um, the people that I want to be around. This this is not where I want, you know, to spend any more time once I get through this thing. Um, so I decided pretty early on that, that I wouldn't be back. And I would say that I kind of carried myself even pretty much as soon as I kind of came out of that haze. Um, I kind of carried myself as, um, uh, with a lot of integrity, even inside, like I, I made this change inside and become the guy that would like hold the, the money for the poker game. And just the, the kind of the guy that everybody knew that, You know, if I said something that it was going to happen or that I meant it, you know, just a trustworthy person, even even in there. And I've tried to carry that from that point on. Um, And I think a lot of that integrity now and honesty now is like probably the most important things to me. I think it's because I spent so much time, the polar opposite, you know, Um, and I understand the damage and the destruction and, the you know, and how hard it is to repair you know, your reputation. Like I understand, like, you know, it, it, I just, I see it completely different. So I made the decision pretty early on. I didn't want to come back and I started carrying myself, you know, pretty much from, from the time I woke up um, like the man that I wanted to be instead of the man I had been.
0: Now, did you start going to programs? Did you start reading a lot and tell us, you know, cause a lot of people we, we have, we make the jokes about how, you know, you see these guys or girls, that that are on meth and they're just their faces are messed up, their teeth is all jacked up. Is that a real thing or is that just something you see on TV? No, it's absolutely a real thing. Um, I think it's you know
1: you you stay up for for days and weeks on on end, so you know you never get in a routine of getting up and brushing your teeth and take care of yourself because it's all just a, one big day. I think that's part of it, um, and then you you know you. You know you grind your teeth in a certain point, you know, just depending on, on kind of how it affects you. Um, but it's it's definitely a thing. Um I I don't know. Um I, I have really good teeth, I guess. I, I managed to keep mine pretty straight, but yeah, I, I guess it wasn't really that, that long of a bender, but um yeah, that's that's really bad for your for your bones and your teeth. Man, it's it's horrible sores and all kinds of stuff. It it, it affects everybody differently. And I guess it depends on, you know, where you're getting it from and what all extra chemicals are in it and stuff. But I've seen that stuff do some, some major damage, major damage.
0: Now, did your mom and dad come around while you got locked up?
1: Yeah, they did. Um, Didn't really, uh, didn't really like come to visit, you know, but I got some letters and stuff. I had, I had one grandmother that, that, especially when I was in county before I got shipped off, that came like every Sunday. And then once I got towards the back end to a transitional center um, where you could leave on Sundays and kind of have a job. Uh, and then you, you have a job through the week and then you get to leave on Sundays. Um, I had an aunt and uncle that would drive like 30 minutes to pick me up. And then drive like forty-five minutes to church, and then drive me back. Like they spent their whole Sunday, basically driving me around every day. I mean, every week, just to just to know that, just to let me know that there are people out there that loved and cared about me, and and also to you know to build that foundation of faith that that I built. And, and I didn't really touch on that on the first, you know, in, in the beginning. But I, uh, as I came out of that haze, within a few weeks, I was walking around the the little track in the day room had my $15 jailhouse radio one, you know, and uh, just happened to kind of turn it on a Christian station and, and sat down under the these payphones where you, where you make your little, you know, 15 minute phone call or whatever. And I'll never forget it. Like the sun came through the window over the little guard thing. And this song by Mercy Me came on called the hurt and the healer. And uh, I felt, like his presence, even in there, it's like, he found me even in there, just, and gave me some comfort, and, and that kind of carried me, I I started going to the church services there, Um, I even got baptized in a slop sink in the prison, you know, Um, and then, and then them picking me up on Sundays, and, and really, you know, taking me to church, and stuff, man, by the time I got out, like, I was, like, openly praising Christ in church, you know, during worship, and before prison, like, I'd never, been a spiritual person really at all. I've never been to church consistently at all. Um, So, yeah.
0: All right. So then, because now I definitely want to, I want to hop, hop, talking. I want to talk about, you know, the difference between religion and jailhouse religion. Um, And then I want to talk about you getting out. But before we do that, I want to thank our sponsors. As you guys know, in jail, in the military, their coffee tastes horrible, (laughs) tastes nasty. Um and I always loved coffee but I couldn't find one that gave me the energy I needed but tasted good so I came out with my own it's called Vertical Momentum Coffee um it's all veteran hand roasted by by uh, United States veterans hands and 100% of the proceeds go to help veterans struggling with homelessness and PTSD I don't make any money off of it it all goes to them so if you love coffee with a mission write coffee down below and I'll get it to you. Also, like we we're talking with my friend Eric. Um if you guys want to start your own podcast, if you want to monetize it, you want to make money off of it, you want to even get famous or get rich off of it, he will teach you how to do that. Um and so if you just write podcast down below, I'll get that information to you. So now, I like I said when I was in jail, I seen a lot of people get jailhouse religion and all of a sudden they get paroled on a friday saturday night they're out at the club forgetting about god forgetting about jesus and it's just they they only did it to get to get out maybe get a little maybe go to church go to some programs and get out a little bit early but for you it seems it took right yeah yeah you're right that's that's definitely
1: a thing and i would say i would say like even inside there's there's certain people that kind of um you know, use that as like kind of like their identity in prison, you know what I mean? And and um and I, I definitely have seen a lot of that. But it yeah, it absolutely stuck with me. Um and as we get into my story, like it really like I think developing that foundation is probably
0: the reason that I'm sitting here talking to you today. So you know, you've been locked up, what'd you do, three, three and a half years, something like that? Yeah, I ended up doing three. Mm-hmm. So and, what is it like hearing the doors close behind you and you can actually you're outside and you're seeing sunlight and you're actually free a free man what did that feel like at that moment man there's no
1: words to describe it you know it's um you know just to be able to go eat regular food and like Give, you know, I think one thing that I really missed in, in prison was was giving someone a hug. <laughs> like, I really just want to give somebody a hug. So, you know, just getting out and being able to hug your family and, and hug your kids and, and things like that. Um, man, there's no words to describe it.
0: All right. So now because I, I, I think, you know, military prison is kind of like it's the same thing when we get out. It's kind of like now you're out of prison or out of jail, and you're still a father, you know, you, you still got to make money, but all of a sudden you have ex-con on your resume. And not a lot of places are willing to give second chances. So what was it like getting out and trying to become a responsible father and and, and a man, but still having to deal with that ex-con on your resume? Yeah, I
1: would, I would say I'm in the, a very, very small percentile of people that, um, you know, I was able to secure a job um, even before I, I left, you know, in that transitional center, making like $8 an hour. Um, and I'd already, any job I'd ever had, even as screwed up as I was, I, you know, worked my way to the top pretty quickly, just kind of a natural leader and, and a pretty bright guy. Um, you know, I was able to take an $8 job, and, and and then as soon as i was released pretty much get promoted into the sales position um and, and which i would never really done sales before and i was just a natural just gifted at, at sales and within like a year i was breaking every company sales record out the owner um i guess i, I went from eight dollars an hour to six figures like in my second year you know to a quarter million dollars a year you know within five years or so after that uh, all working for other people so i uh I got in, I found it much easier than probably 99.9% of the people. Um, you know, it was just blessed, fortunate situation and uh, landed in the right spot. It's something that I happen to be really, really good at.
0: All right. So then, because I was in high ticket sales for a long time, and I would say at least 75% of the people I worked with, they were either coked up, cracked up alcoholic because of the hours that we worked for the expectations. You know, we, ha- we all wanted the car. We all wanted the house. We all wanted the boat, but you know, we all had to take something to keep us going at that level. So how did you not go back to the dope man while being successful? While you having a lot of money to play with? You know, one, the biggest thing is I completely changed my surroundings
1: and, and, i moved to a whole different area a whole different part of the state and lost and didn't have contact with anybody that i ever known before um other than you know a little bit of family um and i think that's one of the reasons i probably don't have very many friends now really is just because I, I left everybody behind and and kind of started completely over um and, and our sales were a little different too you know i was, I was selling uh, you know, flooring work like the same thing. The company that I own now, so I was selling that, and then you had to kind of like manage the project as well. So it was not just sales; it was like sales, title, project management, and and it's you know, big, you know, twenty thousand to to you know, quarter of a million to half a million dollar jobs set you know in in one sale, depending on the situation. So um, I just found that I had this like unique ability to connect with with people, and and I cared about them, and I cared about the work, and um you know to me that's what sales is man it's relationships it's building relationships and and letting people know that you care about what you're doing for them you know as much as anything and sometimes just go and kind of talk about what they got going on in their family and, and you know that's in in my opinion that's the that's the key and that's the secret to sales is becoming one you know with with the person that you're that you're selling to or talking to and you know they're not really clients or whatever. they they become friends, and that's kind of been the secret to my success, really.
0: All right now, I, like I said, I've been in recovery since 1989, and I moved away and like I did the same thing as you as you did, and because I always realized that if I'm going to be successful, I had to get away from people, places, and things. But unfortunately, so, a lot of times you know, if you do move somewhere else where you don't know anybody, you are still taking you with you while you go there. So it's in order to get clean, I think clean and sober, it's an inside job. You got to change from the inside out. So talk to us a little bit about that. You know, cause I'm a bit, I'm a big believer in changing your habits. My friend James clear wrote an amazing book called atomic habits, and I believe everything is habits. So Talk to us about when you got out of jail, how you had to change your habits to change your life. So talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, I actually relapsed, you know, within within my first year of getting out. Um, So let me just kind of finish up the story a little bit. Um, So I get out of prison. I've been out for, I don't know, a couple of weeks and I get I'm sitting in the break room uh, at the place that I work, that same place where I started eight bucks an hour. Um, I wasn't in sales yet. I was a supervisor or something like that at this point. And I get a phone call and it's my sister. And she just says, um, it's mom. It's not good. Get to the hospital. So I get to the hospital and and my mom is overdosed. And and for a week, um, she laid there with her eyes rolled in the back of her head and her mouth kind of hanging wide open, almost like a severe stroke victim. Um, So, I mean... It was really bad. I feel like I almost willed her and prayed her through it because I had missed so much time with her. I'd just gotten out and I was like, you know, God, please don't like let it in like this. She pulls through um, and I was able to separate her from my sister and her boyfriend because that, that like them three together was just, it was just not, it was very toxic. It was just not, it was a recipe for disaster. So I got to get her in her own apartment away from them and uh, she's doing pretty good at this point. I'm actually starting to see glimpses, kind of, of, of my mom when she was at her best. Um, she's got on an apartment. She's like proud of it, you know. She's just kind of really building building some momentum. And I'm sitting on her back porch with her. Um, I check on her every day at my lunch break. It's like she's like ten minutes from work, and I, it's my sister. And she's like, "Mom, me and Sean need a place to stay. Can we come home? Or can we come stay with you for a couple of weeks?" And I happen to be there and she kind of mutes the phone and tells me what's going on. I'm like, mom, like you just overdose like you can barely take care of yourself. You know, this is just, this is not, it's not, she's, you know, she's grown. She's in a, you know, at this point she's pushing 30, you know, it's she needs to figure this out for herself. So that's what she tells her. Um, she stands strong. And, and I think it's the right decision. Um, I think it's what had to happen. Um, but then just a, about not even a month later, It's seven o'clock in the morning, and my aunt calls me. And I don't rarely, it was my mom's sister, and I rarely ever hear from her. Um, It was seven o'clock in the morning. She was calling. I kind of knew instantly something was wrong. I answered the phone, and she just says, um, It's Christina. Um, She's overdosed, and she didn't make it. She passed away um, in some motel room in Atlanta. So I kind of find myself. You know driving 30 minutes to my mom, trying to hold myself together, kind of carrying that weight already of should I have let her should, maybe if I'd let her come on this wouldn't happened. Um, and kind of trying to stay strong because I knew that I was about to deliver the news that would you know devastate and what was left of my mom. I uh, wake my mom up, she makes eye contact with me and before, I even say anything. She just starts going, Oh no, not Christina. Oh no, not Christina. And I could barely get out the words. Um, yeah, mom, you know, she didn't make it. And it was really bad. Obviously I say that was the worst day of my life. Um, so, you know, we get through that, get through the service. Um, and my mom's obviously never the same. Uh, she, her lifetime of, of substance abuse and pills. And and then she would mix it with heavy, heavy drinking, um, Xanax, pain pills, and heavy, heavy drinking. Um, and, and she basically kind of became mentally insane for the for the lack of better word. Um, some days she'd be okay. Some days she'd just sit and cry. Some days she wouldn't get out of bed. Some days I would sit outside of her door and listen to her um scream at no one and have these like vile arguments with with ghosts i mean she was literally um you know arguing with the demons in her in her head um so this went on you know i even tried to get her to move in with me i'd get her back get her my house and she you know i'd go to work and she'd just leave and and there's nothing really that i could do um so we kind of continued that cycle for a few months probably four or five months somewhere in there and I got to check on my mom on. Well, I text her a few times and she didn't text me back that morning, which is, you know, fairly normal because like I said, some days she just wouldn't get out of bed. Um, so I got to check on her and I knock, no one answers and knock again. No one answers, and I turned to turn to walk away and I take a couple steps, I'm like, let me, maybe the door is unlocked. The door's never unlocked, but I checked it and it was. Uh, I turned the knob on the door handle, pushed the door open and my mom's apartment is completely trashed. TV busted pictures off the wall. Um it looks like it looked like honestly like in prison they're coming toss our cells and stuff. Like that's what it looked like. Um I look down the hall and all I can see is my mom's feet run back there and, and my mom is um, suicide by overdose and um you know she's cold and close her eyes and kiss her forehead and and uh pick up some of the pain pills that were laying on the floor, in my mouth and go outside to call 911 and spent the next three or four months kind of, you know, honestly headed back down the same path that landed me uh, in prison. And then uh, by the grace of God, that foundation of faith that I built, that strength that I built inside, um, was able to come to my senses and tell my wife, what was. Sit my wife down and tell her, hey, since mom, this has been going on and I need help, you know, so she gets me to help me kind of get in touch with some people that can help me, give me some help. And um, you know, was able to move on past it from that point on. But uh
0: so like, right now I know that for me my come to Jesus moment was 9/11, not September 11, 2001, Changed my life and changed my whole my whole my whole family's life. Um so take us to that because I everybody I know that's gotten clean and change your life. They remember the exact moment when they said, okay, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. What was that moment for you? It, so to get off of, of the pain pills, I kind of took some
1: the medicine, supposed to help you get off or whatever for like a month. And uh, even that was kind of becoming a little bit of a problem. Um, to be honest. So, you know, my wife got to the point where I'll never forget it. we were sitting on our bedroom floor. It was the uh, Saturday of Labor Day weekend. And, you know, I could just tell that she was, no matter all the crap that I've been through, like she just was not, she was done. She, this is not the path that she wanted, wanted to leave. And I sat and I looked in her eyes and I said, babe, I promise you, you know, it's over. It is done. Now, how many years ago was this? Uh, five, right at five. A little less than five.
0: All right. So now you decide to get clean. and But unfortunately, you know, even though we, we decide to get clean, we still got to start clearing up some of the wreckage of the past before we can move on to the future. Because, you know, us addicts, I'm saying me included, we burn a lot of bridges, piss a lot of people off, have bad reputations, and it's hard to start rebuilding yourself. And and be, even though you know that I'm not the same guy anymore, people will still see, see the same Jonathan, even though you're not that old person anymore. So what was that like, turning your life around, but even still people walking past you, people still knowing you, thinking that you're still the same guy?
1: I mean, I, Really since prison, like I didn't, I, I never really had to deal with, with too much of that. I, I had those, you know, those drastic changes. And I think everybody kind of understood the the few months relapse um, based on everything that I'd kind of kind of kind of just had gone through with, with losing my sister and then finding my mom. Um, so I don't think that I really had to deal with too much of that then. Um I will say since I've started resilient, man, you know, I've kind of had some mud sling, slung at me, I guess, you know, people kind of can find you online. Um, but, um, in my day to day life, man, I've really, I really haven't had to deal with it. Like I said, I cut everyone that I'd ever known out of my life. Um, except for my, my close family and, and I completely started over. Um, you know, but I'll tell you, when getting out, you know, that the, that thing caught up with me. It felt like like once a year, the felony and the, the addiction thing, you know, like I would try to do something and I couldn't do it because I was a felon. Um, kept getting reminded, you know, up just until maybe the last three or four years, it's kind of stopped. But every year I feel like I would get reminded of that person that I used to be. Um, for, you know, for some reason, I tried to do a mentorship program with, with youth at an elementary school through my church and got denied. And, um, you know, there's just several things that I tried to do. And I kept getting reminded of that man that I used to be.
0: All right. So now let's talk about resilient, man. Um, an amazing podcast. I was so humbled and grateful just to be asked to be on the show and you have an amazing show guys, if you're watching this make sure you check out Resilient Man podcast available everywhere. Um, So talk about that. What was your thought process in starting the Resilient Man project and also the Resilient Man podcast?
1: So that that conversation that I had with my wife and I told her, you know, that it was done, I was finished, that I promised her that, you know, that was it. Um, And I did 100%. But I never dealt with anything really. I just kind of focused on my work and was kicking ass at work and making a bunch of money. And then very distant at home, basically became kind of like a roommate that paid the bills. And, um, through that, we had, uh, a conversation that was like, I don't know if I love you anymore. I don't know if this is going to work. Like we're just too, you know, and we had, the, it was one of the hardest conversations I ever had. I ended up moving into a camper of my, of a guy that I knew and uh, started to really look internally for the first time ever. This was two years ago. Um, and I decided, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that that I'm not nowhere near the man that from the outside looking in, I'm doing great, but like there's, I'm nowhere near the man that, that I, that I need to be for my wife that I need to be for my kids. I'm no, you know, I'm just, I'm not. So I lost 50 pounds. I got in shape. I started reading daily. Um, I just completely changed everything. My habit, I started looking at, like, I found some podcasts. Um, Andy Frisella is, like, one of the guys that, one of the first guys that, like, really spoke to me in that whole uh, personal excellence, you know, that, you know, everybody's looking for their purpose. Well, your purpose is to be the best that you can be. You know what I mean? Like, and that kind of message resonated with me at a
0: deep, deep level. I mean, his podcast... The MF CEO project. Awesome. Guys, if you ever get a chance, it may it may be salty a little bit. You may may hear a lot of F bombs. But if you ever want to just get down and dirty, check out the MF CEO, Annie Frasilla and his brother Sal. Amazing podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. I can't, yeah. They they did a lot for, for me in that time. But started developing those daily habits. Found, like I said, a lot of different podcasts, a lot of great information a lot of great book suggestions and things like that and started like atomic habits and a bunch of, a bunch of different books. Um, and did 75 hard. That was part of that 50 pound weight loss, you know, so through that you're reading nonstop. And I I just really started to find myself, you know, really started to understand the person that I needed to be for the first time in my life. And was like the further that I went down that walk, the more and more spiritual I got and the more and more that that, Things showed up in my life affirming things and, and just confirming and and uh i had you know just experience where this all this energy came in me one night and it was just this amazing experience where like my body's like shaking for two or three minutes when it's over it was it was the craziest thing but i, I just kept having these experiences the further i would walk the more clear-minded i would get um and before you know it like those small changes compounded over time and I wake up one day and I'm a completely different person, you know, uh, not that I by any means haven't figured it out. And, and I'll pro- hopefully I'll look back on myself today in, in two or three years and say, man, I had a long way to go, you know, I never want to stop growing and I never want to stop striving to be better. But um, I would say over the last two years, man, I figured a lot of things out. Um, I've done a ton of work inside. Well, I guess it was started really 10 years ago in prison. Um, But I've done this tremendous amount of internal work. I've really started to process through the things that have happened to me. Um, God laid it on my heart that it had all been preparation. Like my life meant something. That victim mentality completely shifted in my my mind. Um, He's like, it's all, you know, you've been through what you've been through to prepare you for what you need to do moving forward. You know, once that thing kind of came inside of me, birth the Resilient Man Project. Um, was was kind of part of that. I'd say that divine message, you know, that I really felt like it came straight from the big guy upstairs and, um, and, and since getting on resilient man, you know, you, it's, it's just, it's been amazing uh, more and more people and more and more momentum and more and more accountability, you know, because you're putting everything out there and um, it's just been awesome, man. So now I want to, you know, use my story and the things that i've learned from my crazy path and my, my my journey and to help other men that either may be about to you know about to run up against something or maybe they're in the middle of something or maybe they've gotten through something but don't know kind of how to process it or get to the next step or or maybe they've had these things happen and they don't they've forgotten how to connect with their family and connect with their wives you know like i just i figured out a lot of really cool things over the past two years
0: because This is a teaching podcast, not only business, but it's also a teaching podcast Um, for me. Like I'm like you. I'm the hug guy. I like to hug. All my friends get hugs. My wife, my kids, my 18 year old, my 20 year old son. They always get hugs and kisses when they come through the door. Um, And I think a lot of men, because I can only speak for a man, they're afraid to have that. um, You know, they're afraid to give the hugs and the kisses. Cause a lot of us like me and you, or for me, at least I didn't have that growing up. I didn't have some fathers telling me, I love you and I got your back. It's okay. So I think a lot of men are afraid of being vulnerable and, uh, you know, saying, you know, like for me, I put out a post today. Um, I I had a bad three weeks. I was struggling really hard, but it's okay for me to be vulnerable now to let people know, you know. I have my good days, I have my bad days. But I think men need start need to become a little bit more vulnerable. What are your thoughts on that? Man, I agree a
1: million percent. I think if men understood the power of being vulnerable and vulnerability, um, they would look at it completely different. And also, like, I like to say that you know, when you're vulnerable, you give the person that you're being vulnerable to permission to be vulnerable back um they're just kind of waiting on somebody to go first and uh and everybody no matter how great it looks like they have it and how put together their life looks like it is i promise you everybody has something on their heart they're going through everybody's struggling with something everybody wants to get it out but they just don't have that 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 place or that safe place or that safe person um, you know, we've lost that that part in our society. We, we've lost that brotherhood aspect, which I think is critical. I think if we can figure out how to get true vulnerability and brotherhood back, I think we can kind of you know do a lot to save this country and, and this world. Um There's so much power in being vulnerable, man. So well, I,
0: I came very close to be being one of the 22 last week. I came very very close, but it was because of my friends, my family, my bride, my wife, my best friend. Um, I think a lot of times guys are too busy being macho instead of saying, "Honey, I'm struggling. Sure. I, you know, I, I need you to protect me. I need you to hold me because I'm not having a good day." And I think if a lot men, a lot, a woman wouldn't think of that being a weakness. I think a woman would think of, wow, my husband actually trusts me that much to protect him. So talk about that, you know, because, like, my wife is my best friend. She's she's my rock. She's my everything. And when I was feeling, you know, this way last week, she said, I got you. I got your back. I know how you're feeling. It's going to be okay. So do you think it's important to for men to, to give it other or their wives? Honey, I'm struggling today. Just hold me. I need you to hold me. Man. What are you, What are your thoughts on that? Yes, it, absolutely. Um, you
1: know, not only about you know being macho, but like I mean, with your wife, yes, or with with your friends, or with with your the people in your circle. I mean, that you kind of have it all figured out, or that everything's always going great. You know, this um, you know social media life that that everybody kind of wants to put on that everything's great and hunky-dory, you know, and, and that's just not reality, you know. Um, and to have, I've never, I can't even put into words how important it is to have a wife that, that has my back, that, that 100% um, is, is just there for me no matter what's going on, that will understand and that, that will help me get through it, um, 100%, man. Being vulnerable and, and with your wife, with, your, with just being real and honest, and like you just said, I had a bad week, or you know, I haven't figured this part of my life out. I struggle in this area, or, or whatever it is, man. Hundred percent.
0: Yeah, because a lot of people don't realize that a lot of highly successful people end up taking their own lives because you know we all see the houses, the cars, the boats, the jets but we don't see that person sitting at the kitchen table all alone.
1: 100%. That, and they haven't,
0: you know, they have all the money around them, but they're still, some people are so rich. All they have is money. You know what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Absolutely. I think that they, they,
1: they, they've forgotten or lost connection, you know, true intimate connection with their wife or fellowship with their, their, you know, other men around them. And, and, yeah. I, also like, I think knowing your purpose or, or having something to pour yourself into that's much bigger than yourself um, it is critical to this life. Um, you know, since I've kind of had that, that placed on my heart that it's all been for a reason. It's all been preparation for, for what, I, for what's coming. And I've kind of started resilient, man. And I found this, this purpose driven piece to my life, um, man. That's the key. That is the key is is to put your faith in something bigger than yourself, the big upstairs, and then to figure out like, what is my legacy? What am I going to do to leave this place better than it was when I got here? You know what I mean? Like, and and just to to find that purpose, man, money is is fine. You know, I mean, I guess you need it to take care of your family. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. But at the end of the day, um, I think you have to have some sort of purpose.
0: Yep. And that, and guys, if you're ever wondering what your purpose is, make sure you pick up the book, A the Purpose Driven Life by Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. Awesome book. I got it on my audio book on Audible. I listen to it every day just to keep me going. And, and like I think you said, you know, a lot of us don't have a purpose. A lot of us are just going to work to pay the bills, to pay the house off, but we don't have that big hairy goal or dream when we wake up in the morning. Like my goal is to help a million people this year. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big hairy goal, but it gets me up in the morning Right. moving. It's like, all right, I got people. I want to serve. I want to help. I want to save lives. I want to change the world. So tell me where the resilient man project and the podcast is heading in the next year. Well, we're going to do this
1: virtual challenge, um, and it's just going to be basically, you know, if, if you're in that rut um, or, or whatever and, and you need something to kind of kickstart you, it's just going to be a, f- a five-day challenge completely free. Um, and each day is going to be a different speaker, and then we're going to kind of give you a challenge at the end of it. It's going to wind up being like seven daily, or we're going to call them challenges, hoping that over the course of 30 days they turn into habits because me and you both understand how important habits are. So it's really just kind of kickstart that and, and to, to, let people understand or, or like show them the impact that these small habits and these small changes can make, um, on the back end of that, you know, we're going to, we're going to come out with, with a, like a men's group, some low cost, um, men's group here pretty soon, uh, just about getting back to that brotherhood and connection piece, um, I'd like to start doing some free local meetups too. you know, I'm going to start doing things like that. And public speaking is where my heart is. I've um, got a couple of events lined up. So that that's super exciting. Like that's what gets me going. Um, I cannot wait to, to kind of, you know, take the next step in that journey. Um, but man, the podcast is fun for sure. I love it. Um, get to have amazing conversations with people that I, I never would have gotten to have you know, such as yourself and, and many, many others. Um, hearing the stories and, and you know, understand that there's so many other people out there that have gone through horrible, tragic, whatever, fill in the blank things, yet they have managed to, to get through it, get to the other side see the purpose in it and now they're moving forward in that purpose man it's just a beautiful thing it's a beautiful network of people and man, i'm so blessed and fortunate to, to be you know my, my prayer every day is like man lord thank you for choosing me for this mission you know it's it's just it's an amazing time of my life and my family's life and i'm so blessed and fortunate and thankful
0: all right so now where can we find your podcast where can we find find your your project
1: Pretty consistent across all platforms. Resilient Man Project, all social media. Um, resilientmanproject.com has links to everything, and then we're on Apple, Spotify, all the big ones. Resilient Man Project, so pretty, pretty, pretty consistent, pretty simple.
0: All right, so, so for the last couple of minutes, also, you're a businessman and you're a Christian businessman, just like my am, just like my Eric Allen is. He's a Christian Brit, where we live by a different credo, where we live. A lot of times it's, I'm going to say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to over-deliver while I do it, because I want to do the best job possible. So what is it like, and sometimes it's a struggle being a Christian businessman, because a lot of times there's some stuff you don't want to get involved in, because you know it ain't the right thing. So talk to us about being a Christian businessman and what that's like and what it's doing in your life.
1: Yeah, 100%, man, that integrity piece um, is, you know, critical, you know, can't um, lower your standards or, or you know, go off course to make an extra dollar or to get a contract that may be the wrong way. Um, you know, those things, you know, just um, are not something that I want to be a part of. It's not the energy that I want in my life or in my company. Uh, I will say that, you know, the first year in business and really 22 was my first full year, um, horrible mistakes in the beginning. You know, I had the concept and the idea and could understand, understand the job site and the the technical stuff, but didn't really understand how to run a business. So I really struggled, you know, honestly, it was, it was a really hard year, um, financially for me and my family, um, kind of shifted to some residential stuff for a while and really operated from, from this place of scarcity. Um, operated from a place of trying to survive the day, trying to survive the month, trying to scrape enough together to pay this, to pay that, just completely approached 22 in the wrong manner. Um, Took some time off around Christmas, a couple of weeks and and just kind of reset. And I decided I'm going back to the industrial where I belong, where I've always made my money and uh, changed my mindset completely. Operated from a place of gratitude and, and abundance didn't get like, all up about every little job making sure I had to get it let me give a discount to get this job you know I just kind of got away from all those things and uh, I mean things changed pretty much instantly it's amazing the mindset shift and how quickly things began to change um, and this is all within what 40 days or whatever and I'll tell you a quick story and we'll end on this I called, this con- I called about this contract that, that it's supposed to have been awarded like a year ago. And I noticed nobody had been doing it. So I reached out to my contact and I said, hey, what about this project? I noticed nobody's doing it. He said, but well, they didn't really, they didn't want to spend the money. Um, so it's been shelved. It was like half a million bucks. So they didn't want to spend it. I don't know if it will be done this year, next year, whatever. Um, this is at 10 o'clock in the morning. The project has not been talked about for eight months. I asked him about it at 10 o'clock in the morning two o'clock, his boss calls and says, Hey, this has to be done by March 12th after sitting there for eight months on the shelf. So if that's not, you know, I firmly believe that that when you're in these struggles and these seasons, like I have been in a certain area of my life in 22, that once you kind of figured out why you're there and, and you've learned the, the lesson that you're supposed to learn, that he'll kind of lead you out of it. And, and I made that mindset shift. And within a month, you know, I'm landing a half a million dollar contract and, and things are looking completely different. So you know, if you're out there struggling and, 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 in one of those places, man, you know, mindset is so important and you can say law of attraction or, or the guy, big guy upstairs looking out for you, however you want to put it, but the energy that you put out and, and the mindset that you approach things with is, is, is your reality. And and man, it, that has proven itself to me so many times, but that was just a glaring example. Like, you know, nobody talks about something for eight months. I mentioned it at 10 o'clock and at two o'clock has got to be done by March 12th. Like. It doesn't happen. You know what I mean? Like, that, that. what's the odds of that happening,
0: you know, unless it's, it's you know, supposed to be that way. But also, you know, my friend, my my friend Russell Brunson wrote the three-book trilogy, and he talks about how the world is going to give you what you ask for. It. And if you're competing on price, you can only work your way down to the bottom. It's better to be the highest priced than the lowest priced. Because a lot of people want to know, well, why is he the highest price? Because I give the best. So, if guys, if you're struggling with with that mentality that, oh, um, I'm just going to make it. I'm, I'm going to make enough to just pay my bills. Well, that's what the world's going to give you. And like my friend Ed Milet talks about, he talks about the reticular, any reticular activating system in the mind that whatever you look for, you're going to find, whether it's success or failure, whatever you focus on that's what you're going to find,
1: right? Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> it's been, like I said, I'm 22 it was a grind and man, I just, I'm, I'm blown away just at the, you know, practice what you preach, you know, it's things, the things I say, but you know, you still get caught up in, in your life trying to survive. You have all these people counting on you, you know, you're just doing the best you can and, and sometimes you don't quite know how to handle it. So it goes back to, you know, we don't have it all figured out. I mean, no matter who you see or what you get, you know, I, everybody has their struggles and, and I am just had one of the toughest years of my life and now I'm working my way out of it because I learned what I was supposed to learn, changed my mindset, and and put my faith where it belonged.
0: And now things look completely different. Yeah, I love it, guys. So make sure you check out his podcast, Resilient Man Podcast, available everywhere, um, the Resilient Man Project. Um, also, guys, like my T-shirt, says, I don't know if you can see it today, but it says, Today I decide. Now I'm a big Joel Osteen guy, and he always says, "Today you can make the decision to be a victor or the victim." I choose to be the victor. So, guys, if you're struggling today, make sure that you make the decisions that you want to be the victor and not the victim, and start. If you're if you're if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, today is your day. You don't have to live that way. All you have to do is decide. I don't want to live like that anymore. Drop to your knees. Say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. You do. And you don't need some big prayer. You don't need this, you know, Catholic prayer. All God wants you to have a, a, a broken and contrite heart. And you'll see he's going to do miracles in your life. Yes, sir. Jonathan, brother, I, I, I love talking to you and I'm so grateful for you. And I can't wait to see what things you got coming up in the next couple of months, because I know you're going to crush it.
1: Man, man, thank you so much for having me, dude. You've been such a great supporter of mine since, since we met. And man, I can't say enough, man, you're, you're a really genuine, good person.
0: and I'm thankful and proud to know you. you. I love it guys. uh, Like I said, you know, a vertical momentum. The only way to go is up. And I love you guys. And I'm so grateful for you guys. I'll see you on Wednesday. And by the way, if you catch out, Wednesday's episode, if you love the the band Def Leppard, the drummer will be on our podcast Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So definitely check us out. Jonathan, brother, I love you. Have an amazing week. Love you too, man. Thank you for having me, Rich. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.